Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth weekly episode of HR Works COVID-19 Update. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. We are now three months into the pandemic, and we're starting to see the first COVID-related employee lawsuits. For example, the world's largest beef processing company is facing a wrongful death and survival action for the coronavirus-related fatality of an employee who worked in one of their Pennsylvania factories. If history is any guide, it's likely the tip of the iceberg. Employers beware. We are pleased to have with us today attorney Andrew B. Zellman, partner at Berger Singerman, the business law firm out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Andrew represents businesses and individuals in a variety of complex commercial disputes, including intellectual property, class action, and general liability cases in both state and federal courts. Andrew also has an established practice devoted to counseling and defending employers in an employment litigation. Prior to joining the firm, Andrew spent years handling a wide range of cases at a full-service AM Law 100 firm. Andrew currently serves as the chair of the Grievance Committee of the Florida Bar and is a member of the Federal Court Practice Committee, a standing committee of the Florida Bar. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jim, and it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Let's jump right in. Uh, a business learns, let's say a business learns one of their employees may have been exposed uh, to COVID-19 in the workplace. Uh, what are some of the things they should do in response to protect themselves from litigation? And probably just as important, what are some of the things they shouldn't do? Sure. Well, uh, first off, uh, in the hopes that the business has already uh, implemented an established company policy, a company handbook uh, that addresses many of these issues, the first rule of thumb uh, for most employers, and particularly private employers, is to consult those company policies. And, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the, the meat and potatoes of what should be in those those company policies and that handbook. Um, but but that really should be the guide. And, and at the least, those policies should be aimed at, one, maintaining a safe workplace free from viruses to both the employee and, of course, depending on the business of the customer. And, and secondly, and what's more important here, would be limiting exposure to potential litigation. And so what we're seeing now uh, is where there's been exposure to COVID-19, um, the first stop uh, for, for a lot of either litigation or, or um, uh, government enforcement has been OSHA. And OSHA, uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, has taken a very hard, aggressive stance uh, on uh, ensuring that companies, either essential businesses uh, throughout the term of COVID, so starting in late February, uh, early March, when the shutdown started happening, um, through now where we see a wave of reopening of non-essential businesses and those you know, uh, pursuant to government, government order and, and administration, um, that they follow certain protocols. And I think that this started with um, certainly with the 10 steps that I think everybody got in the mail, there may have been a mailer uh, from the president of the executive office um, saying, you follow these 10 steps. We've heard about social distancing. We heard about uh, Dr. Fauci and the CDC. Um, but if, um, if an employee is infected, really the first thing to do um, would be to report. And there's new OSHA guidelines that, that uh, I think were promulgated uh, about 10 days ago and what they require is that there needs to be actually an investigation from the employer. And I think that the trend with many of these laws is that the employer has the burden uh, to follow through, to implement the policies, certainly, 
to ensure that the employees are, um, are safe from the viruses under OSHA, to ensure that the employees are paid properly, and if teleworking uh, or otherwise, if those, if those policies are implemented, that they're done properly. But here, with a live infection, something that's coming into the workplace, um, the guidelines require an investigation. So really, what does that involve? Um, there has to be reporting, notifying the employees to determine whether there's further contact with a potentially contagious employee. And there's actually a form, it's called the OSHA 300 log, where the employee, the, the company needs to fill out and actually submit that information. So that, that's the first thing to do. Uh, the second thing to do would be just to ensure that, that those operations are, and controls are in place and that they're, they're actually protecting the employees or customers for further and future exposure. And what I mean by that is making sure if, in fact, the, the exposure to the virus happened on the premises of the workplace, that, that sufficient controls and operations are, are, um, are continuing. And if they need to be tightened, they need to be tightened. And so, um, you know, number one would be reporting. Number two would be reviewing the controls and the operations to make to make sure that it continues to to um, uh, protect the other employees and potentially uh, the customers. And so, before um, engaging in any litigation or worrying about litigation, those would be really the first two things, and, and those would be the things that OSHA would tell you you need to do. Would you, uh, when it comes to employers' policies, uh, particularly in the wake of COVID nineteen, what would you say the most important updates should be that employers should make? Sure. Well, in general, when making company policies, um, particularly when it when it's dealing with something like COVID, meaning uh, some kind of infectious disease or virus, um, uh, the, the the company should follow guidance, regulations, statutes, orders from federal, state, local governments, and agencies, and that includes and we've heard a lot about this Centers for Disease Control, uh, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has come out with a lot of guidance. And of course, uh, OSHA, uh, which which all address really what should be in a handbook, uh, which should be provided to employees, and even OSHA will will give a risk. There's a risk table. Where it's actually a a a, a triangle, uh, and it, it'll tell you uh, in terms of what industry and, and what type of work it is. So, for example, a medical profession or dental office would be a very high risk, and and in terms of those employees. There are there should be certain policies and protocols that the employer should implement. At the lower end is your general office, your law offices, um, uh, your business offices, where contact is not essential, uh, uh, which can be done by remote means or even between offices. And so um, that really is is where to find the information that should be in these policies. But but really to break down the three most important updates, the first would be. Um, there needs to be updated guidance in a handbook regarding employee benefits and operations. What I mean by that is look at your paid leave policies, make sure they're adjusted to reflect regulatory requirements and actual business needs. What we've seen uh, throughout this uh, pandemic is that a lot of employers uh, have been caught between the, the dichotomy of do I need to furlough or lay off employees if they have uh, paid time off or banked sick time or banked sick leave. How do I implement that? What can I do? And if I don't, if I don't want to furlough or lay off these employees, is there a possibility for me to require the employees who are either teleworking or perhaps there isn't as much work for them to do? Can I require the employees to take their paid t- time off during the month of April? 
or May or June before work starts picking up. And that is to avoid perhaps a situation where the economy reopens, things turn around, and then you have employees taking two weeks of vacation because they have that sick leave. And so if a policy provides that kind of flexibility for the employee, uh, for the employer in terms of authorizing, uh, scheduling, and, and, and requiring pre-approval for before paid time off or sick leave or vacation time is used by the employee, well, that's certainly something that needs to be reviewed. Uh, another, another key component underneath the employee benefits and operations rubric would be your telecommuting policies. Um, not every business can have telecommuting. And, and I think that that's inherent. You know, uh, many businesses in the industrial field or otherwise require their employees to be uh, in, in, at, at, the, at the workplace uh, in person, such as Jim, the, the example you gave about the unfortunate wrongful death action involving the, the, the employee in, in Pennsylvania on a, on a food processing line. Um, but otherwise, where there is telecommuting policies, uh, there needs to be at least information on who it applies to, what positions, and whether um, an employee can be considered for telecommuting. You know, the one thing to avoid in any one of these policies is any appearance of potential discrimination. Um, for those employees who work a position which may be allowed to be telecommuted, um, the employer really needs has the onus to look and see if it's a reasonable accommodation to allow the employee uh, to telecommute. And if so, and if it's not a burden on the employer, perhaps that should be left open. So that should certainly be under the employee benefits and operations. The second uh, general source of, of, um, of, of policies in the wake of COVID-19 would be your business co continuity plan. And this actually has been uh, um, uh, advised by OSHA that every company should have some sort of infectious disease control policy. And I think for many companies, the concept of this type of policy has been foreign until now. Um, and it appears that this policy is going to be a regular um, provision in every handbook going forward. Uh, and what, what's in an infectious disease control policy? It's the steps the business is going to take to continue. It's the steps the business needs to do in order to protect their employees. And it can be flexible because, as we know, the guidance keeps changing. Um, uh, you know, are, are masks required? Not in every industry and certainly not in every office. Um, uh, is a plexiglass or a divider required? Certainly not in, in, in most places of work. Is social distancing required? Yes. Is hand washing required? Yes. Is the obligation to ensure that, um, that the tissues and napkins are, are, are placed in waste baskets? Yes. Uh, should there be information in a business continuity plan or infectious disease control policy that tells the employees, we have a break room we don't want more than X number of people in the bank room, break room at a time. Absolutely. And, and OSHA has said that. Now, historically, some handbooks have included sort of an OSHA-friendly policy, which, which may be entitled something like a health and safety in the workplace policy. Um, my recommendation would be either include a new infectious disease control policy or amend or supplement that health and safety in the workplace policy um, on a provisional basis to address these issues going forward, certainly subject to change. Now with that infectious disease control policy, you can add in your employee screening procedures. 
Uh, again, um, this is not every industry, not every business has to follow the same procedures, but at the least, uh, every company should require their employees to self-report, which is when reopening or uh, in terms of an essential business that is continued, um, a form requiring the employees to fill out if they've had the, had symptoms of coronavirus over the last 14 days, have they been tested? Um, have they have they had a fever? Uh, each day they've had a fever. Uh, and to have that information to, to submit it to the employer, uh, the employer should still keep that information confidential unless, of course, um, there is a diagnosis of coronavirus and there has been exposure. And then the ADA has, has certainly stated that um, the, the, the needs of the protection from exposure outweigh the individual's confidentiality rights. Now, that doesn't mean it should be reported anywhere else, but only to those people who need to know. Um, and so th those are th those are one and two, which is employee benefits and operations. Second would be some sort of business continuity plan. And then lastly, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, under the business continuity plan or as a separate plan, there really needs to be uh, those reporting requirements or reporting procedure under OSHA. Um, for the larger companies, uh, there may be multiple people responsible for reporting. And if, if somebody comes in sick, reports sick, shows symptoms, and it needs to be reported under the OSHA guidelines, there needs to be a point person or point people in the company. And that, that entire procedure needs to be in writing for everybody to know. If I'm feeling this way, I need to notify this person. That may be a supervisor. It may be somebody higher up. Uh, nevertheless, there should be one protocol so things don't slip through the cracks. And the dual purpose is that ensures the company investigates properly, avoids any claims of retaliation. Retaliation has really been the crux of what OSHA is saying on a litigation side. Uh, if an employee complains that there is a issue in the company uh, in, in terms of compliance with CDC, OSHA, or even just a blanket statement, I don't feel safe. Um, the employer has the duty to, to investigate. And the last thing a company needs is for an employee to say that they complained and subsequently either were forced to leave the workplace because their complaints were not addressed or were terminated, furloughed, or laid off, notwithstanding the fact that that furlough or that layoff may have been due to something that has nothing to do with retaliation has nothing to do with any of the complaints. So those are really the three sort of buckets of information that should be in every employee employee handbook, uh, many of which ha has predated COVID-19, but, but would need to be either amended uh, or supplemented with new information to combat the, the pandemic. It seems to me like uh, it doesn't much make a difference if you've updated an employee handbook or your policies if you don't have some sort of way of proving that your employees are aware of those changes. Do you think the employer should require signed waivers, uh, you know, just saying that they understand that there are, there are changes or, or acknowledging the new pages or sections that were, were reviewed by the employee? So Jim, yes. I mean, I, I do believe that there should be an acknowledgement, not necessarily a waiver. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, for every change, to the employee handbook, and particularly here, if we're talking about sweeping changes or sweeping amendments or sweeping supplements to include this new information, whether it's a new company that is 
finally opening their doors. I know in some states like New York, New Jersey, um, many private businesses still can't open. And so now they have time to make these changes. Um, requiring the employee to acknowledge uh, the new changes in the handbook does a couple of things. Uh, one, certainly establishes a record that the employee saw, acknowledged, and, and, and um, signed off on these changes. Now, the employee may say they didn't have, they didn't have any choice but to sign off on it. Um, nevertheless, it's an acknowledgement. Secondly, um, it, it opens up the discourse and it allows an employee to raise issues that they may see going forward or ask those questions because these handbooks are going to be static. Uh, the policies are static. We're, we're not going to be able to address everything in every handbook. And really, you don't want to do that because mm -hmm. you want to be able to leave open the, 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 the opportunity to revise and change the handbook in the future, again, with new guidance and accepted practices and local governments giving more information in terms of um, what can happen moving forward. Um, but uh, you know, the third, the third reason is you're implementing these policies as the, as the company. You can only do what you can do as the company. If the employees don't follow the policies, um, they're useless. And so what you want to promote or what I believe every company should promote is it's a shared responsibility. Um, the employer, sometimes with input from the employees, and that's why you send them these documents in advance and have them sign them, um, will establish these policies in compliance with, with the law. Um, and, and, and where there's not law and where it's open, um, the recommended guidance. The employees have to implement these policies with oversight from the employer and from the managers and from the officers of the company. Um, having the employees sign off allows them to have some skin in the game, that the onus is on them to implement the policies because if, if the employer requires masks in the facility and one employee is not wearing the mask and if the other employees uh, don't speak up and the employer misses it, certainly there's going to be liability on the employer, but the policy is not going to have its intended effect. So, so I do think that all employees should acknowledge uh, in an acknowledgement form, much like you would do uh, whenever you'd have an employee sign uh, the handbook for the first time or maybe on an annual review. In terms of a waiver, waivers, uh, and that's a question I've actually gotten from a lot of clients and a lot of companies, um, waivers are um, uh, may not be enforceable here. Uh, it really depends. It may be partially enforceable. Um, but where there is um, a, a wholesale um, waiver and hold harmless or assumption of risk uh, attached to any handbook, or certainly with these policies, the law may step in at some point and say, well, that's not a meaningful voluntary choice. And I think that there's probably some truth to be said that an employee is not voluntary, voluntarily agreeing uh, that if he comes, he or she comes back to an office, uh, that if they if they uh, contract coronavirus while in the office, which again is difficult to prove, and again, that's why OSHA is having these reporting logs, um, that they assume the risk of this happening by virtue of them signing a piece of paper. It's a little bit different than than bungee jumping and and you know and, right. and skydiving and the like. Uh, but but here, um, it, the waiver may not be enforceable, uh, and it may actually, and I've seen this in the press.
there's been some negative press about employers uh, sort of forcing employees to sign this waiver, uh, sort of being, being made to look like a scapegoat for why they won't follow their policies. And so I really think a waiver should be on a case-by-case basis, really depending upon the position of the employee. But in any event where there's a waiver being considered, the employer certainly needs to make sure that those policies are being followed. Thank you again, Andrew, for, for taking the time to join us today. Listeners, please check back next week. We're going to continue our conversation with Andrew. Uh, you know, This time we talked about the various policies that should be in place given the, the context of COVID-19. And next week we're going to discuss some of the types of lawsuits that employers are facing, what that landscape is going to look like, do we think there's going to be... Uh, uh, is that going to be an ongoing thing? Um, and then what, what can businesses do to help prevent or, or handle such lawsuits? You can always follow us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcasts, or if you have coronavirus-related employment law questions and you would want answered on these shorter episodes, please email me at jdavis at blr.com. Uh, we can't guarantee that that'll happen, but it, it would be fun. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.